0: I'm Rebecca Diem, the communications manager at The Word on the Street. Over the course of my career at Watts, I've faced many challenges. I've done live media hits while holding wiggly puppies. I've helped move the festival online and then back to the streets again. I've even had to come to grips with the fact that it isn't possible to read every book on the TBR list that grows exponentially with each year I've been employed here. But as we began working on this episode of Read the North, I found myself faced with what might be the most daunting task yet. Trying to get a bunch of publishing world professionals to create a unified definition for the science fiction and fantasy genre. Oh, <sighs> genre is in many ways a marketing term.
1: I would define speculative fiction. Sorry, my cat is losing her mind. Um, I would define speculative fiction as anything that is not realist.
2: I am fond of saying that uh, all genres are fantasy first, and um, everything else, including domestic realism, is a subgenre of
3: fantasy. In fact, though, the truth is science fiction and fantasy got put together again because for marketing purposes. When you think about it, uh, scientifically, logically extrapolated future vision and the magical stuff you've made up don't necessarily go together. So we we put them together because neither of them actually exists at the moment.
0: So to recap, it's anything not realist and actually fantasy is everything. But also sci-fi and fantasy are just marketing terms for things that don't exist. Anything else? It's ultimately...
1: I, I am largely about vibes.
0: Oh <laughs> right, it's also vibes. <laughs> Here's the thing, even though each of our guests are saying something different, none of them are really wrong. As we've already discovered this season, the boundaries of genres can often be porous and hard to define it's sort of unsurprising that this would be especially true for a bunch of people who work primarily in the space of ignoring the rules and imagining new things into existence. And hard to define as it may be, sci-fi and fantasy is still a distinct space in our literary landscape, one that our guests have a lot to say about. So hop on your spaceship, your dragon, your noble steed, or flying car, and join us for this episode of Read the North as we journey into the world of science fiction and fantasy. If you're doing a deep dive into sci-fi and fantasy, there's no better place to start than Toronto's temple-to-SFF, Baca Phoenix Books. Now located at 84 Harvard Street. As an author of speculative fiction, this is one of my personal favorite bookstores in the city. And who better to speak with than one of their longtime employees?
3: Hello, my name is Chris. I am the former manager of Back of Phoenix Books. I have been here for mm, going on 25 years now, ran the store for almost 20. But Back of Phoenix, which is the world's oldest science fiction and fantasy bookstore, is a little bit Bookstore California. You can resign, but you can't really leave. We have a number
0: (laughs) of employees who have
3: been here in some capacity or another for decades.
0: So last year, uh, you celebrated 50 years. Do you think that Baca Phoenix's focus on a genre niche helped with its longevity?
3: Absolutely. After the first... Great bookseller wars, which was Chapters versus Indigo in Canada. (laughs) Um, Then came the War of Attrition, which was the rise of Amazon. The thing about Indigo is Indigo is a colleague in the industry and Amazon is an enemy. They are very different. We send people to Indigo all the time. If they are looking for cookbooks or business books or things that we don't carry, people from Indigo call us when they need more information and they send people here. Amazon takes no prisoners and knows where all the bodies are buried (laughs) um most of the bookstores that survived those two big waves did because they are very good at what they do and many of them survive because they are very good at the specialty they chose people come here because for 50 years they've known if you want not just science fiction and fantasy but to talk about it to learn about it to hear about it to meet other people who love it this
0: is where you come Baca Phoenix is a science fiction and a fantasy bookstore. On the shelves, these genres exist side by side. Chris says that trying to keep them separate would just get too complicated. What about authors who write in both genres? What about crossover works? But when it comes to classification, there are some distinctions. Is there any delineation like that in science fiction, fantasy, speculative fiction, where it's like, it must have these elements. I think
3: in, in science fiction, I would say that element is the speculative element. And in fantasy, it would be the fantastic element. Now, the degree to which that is emphasized or um, pushed or present, that's very different. You can have books in which everything is almost perfectly normal, except one tiny thing is different. And that can be, you can do that for both science fiction and fantasy, in that we live in the world that we live in today, except that, I'm throwing this out there, if you've written this book, I apologize. For some reason, we didn't develop cell phones. So it's this year, but we still are entirely locked by wires. And so then how does that unfold in today's kind of with today's politics and things like that? Or how does that change today's politics? How does it change the spread of news, etc, cetera, etc? Cetera? Or in fantasy, it could be a world very much like this one, you live in modern day Madrid, but people can't lie. <laughs> Again, you know, it, and yeah. what does that do to your society? So those that element of speculation is what makes something science fiction or fantasy. And if it is scientifically progressive or scientifically extrapolated, it would probably fall in the science fiction category. If it is magically or fantastically extrapolated, it would be fantasy. Yeah. But that's more of a personal description. I don't want to say that I get final say on <laughs> on these things because everybody's everybody gets an opinion here.
0: I think I really sense that when talking to other people in the community is that like, Everyone kind of dances around it. They're like, no one wants to set the rules because the rules keep on being broken like every decade or so. And as our knowledge of of the technology and the fantastical around us changes and evolves.
3: Yes. I mean, I had... We had a customer who came here once to tell us that the only science fiction was about physics because physics was the only science. (laughs) And I mean, the truth is, for a customer like that, what we're going to do is try to find him books that feature new and interesting and exciting developments in physics, but also pat him on the back and send him on his way because Sal and Gene Therapy, thank you very much, is a science, you know? <laughs> um, and Improvements in Jet Propulsion is a science. And all of these things are worthy. That's, that's the problem with setting the rules is both writers and audiences, tend to self-censor and you tend to self-impede. Uh, well, I can't do that because that would break the rules. And that's a loss for the genre. So it's it's not a fear so much as an unwilling to set a hard limit that people might then be afraid to cross.
0: What about um, the perception of, like, a, a reluctance to have that perception that a book is more genre or science fiction or fantasy. Like, there's a pretty notable Canadian author who was reluctant for a while to have her books considered speculative fiction or well, science fiction. Yes, it was,
3: it was sci-fi.
0: To be clear, I'm talking about Margaret Atwood. The truth is, uh, Peggy
3: has always been a big fan of. She just, again, came at it from a, a time in which science fiction had a lot more rules, and that this is what comes from setting rules like that. When you realize that, no, changing one thing but leaving the rest is adding a speculative element. Handmaid's Tale was science fiction. I mean, it is now, unfortunately, becoming a friggin' how-to manual <laughs> in some parts of the world. But... Margaret Atwood has come out to a number of things. She was a guest of honour at a a local convention a number of years ago. And can I just say she was hilarious Mm -hmm. and really well-spoken and deeply experienced in the genre.
0: So, yeah, there's a reason that people are wary of setting hard and fast rules. Readers and writers benefit when we broaden the scope of what gets included in genre conversations. But there's another big thing that Chris is touching on here, too. This idea that The Handmaid's Tale is feeling alarmingly less like science fiction all the time. People will often ask her about science fiction's ability to predict the future, because occasionally it sort of seems to. But, she cautions, that's usually not a good thing. Kim Stanley Robinson wrote um,
3: a marvelous series about climate change. And the first one was called 40 Signs of Rain and it was about the destruction of a major American city due to a flood that could have been prevented. And it got a lot of attention right around Hurricane Katrina. And, you know, they went to him and said this, and he was like, yeah, no, I wasn't predicting that that was going to happen. If, if you read the book, you realize I was writing about Washington, D.C., hmm. but the same principles of neglect and climate change applied he was not trying to predict something; uh, he just did. And again, generally, when we when science fiction and fantasy predicts, it's not necessarily great.
0: Yeah,
3: uh, there were a lot of books before now about plagues.
0: <laughs> you know, you don't need me to tell you what real life plague Chris is alluding to, but she's right. How often do you read a science fiction book with a plot that you hope will come to pass? Often, these books could be read as cautionary tales or a way of collectively processing the risk of rapid advances in technology. But that's not to say that the world we're living in right now is perfect. We've got more than enough problems of our own to reflect on and process and deal with. And that's where Chris thinks sci-fi and fantasy can really be useful. I think in some ways, we have
3: some experience in Canada of being an observer of the powerful. We are next door to a juggernaut on the world scene, and we have to deal with the consequences constantly. We are at the same time, or at least at this time, finally beginning to come to a reconciliation of our own past, which is not as pretty as many of us might have thought, um, and is much more problematic and contains a lot more violence and genocide. Again, that's a good thing too, coming to accept that, coming to an awareness of what we used to be and what we would like to become is a great opportunity for science fiction and fantasy.
0: Yeah, so there's almost like more opportunities for um, Canadian and Indigenous writers to kind of like reflect and observe and process that and then share it. Mm -hmm. Uh,
3: Robert J. Sawyer said once, I'm going to, Rob, if you're listening, I'm sorry, I'm going to mangle your quote here, (laughs) that... One of the great things about science fiction and fantasy is that you can use it to examine problems of today without actually using today's problems, because those can be very polarizing. If you set it in a future world, or if you set it in a fantasy world, you can be discussing the same kinds of tensions, the same kinds of issues without making reference to the issues that are setting people off right here, right now. And as Canada comes to grips with its own past, fantasy and science fiction will be ways for us to explore some of those issues.
0: In the last few years, there has been an increased amount of attention on writers in the genre who are Black, Indigenous, and people of colour. There continues to be major inequity in who gets published, which is to say, disproportionately white authors. But bestseller lists have proven that there is a huge demand for diverse stories – Stories that explore Canada's issues, written by the communities that have experienced them firsthand. Um, We're seeing more Indigenous authors on the bestseller lists in Canada, like Cherie Dimeline or Wab Gijig Rice. Have you noticed anything in particular about readers' awareness of or appetites for these work?
3: Certainly here, our customers have always been thoughtful, smart, interested, and curious people. So they are generally quite eager to read what's next. They are quite eager to make their worlds bigger. Their physical worlds bigger, their emotional worlds bigger, their, you know, intellectual worlds bigger. And that's what opening the genre to different cultures does,
0: is it makes the world bigger. Right now, sci-fi and fantasy publishers have an opportunity and it could be argued, a responsibility to be publishing world-expanding work that meets that demand. And our next guest is part of a really cool team doing exactly that. Meet Carrie Seaburn and allow them to introduce you to Augur magazine.
1: Yeah, we founded Augur in 2016 and we funded in 2017, and we are Canada's only professional science fiction and fantasy magazine. Lately We've been branching out beyond just one magazine. We have a second magazine, Tales and Feathers magazine, which is a slice-of-life, cozy fantasy mag, as well as AugurCon, our biannual, though turning annual, uh, speculative fiction conference. That's one of the highest-attended sci-fi fantasy events in Canada. And we're really just hoping to continue to... Publish as many incredible speculative fiction creators in Canada while creating room for marginalized creators who are both Canadian and Indigenous.
0: That's pretty amazing. You've you've seen a lot of growth over the last um, like very few years. So tell me about the origins of Augur and what inspired you to start it and what the response has been like. So
1: one of the most incredible things
0: about being in the sci-fi fantasy space is
1: just the way that people even responded when we launched Augur. I think Augur is doing great work, but I also think that the sci-fi fantasy community in the right spaces is absolutely incredible. So... I had a test run magazine when I was in university called The Spectatorial at the University of Toronto, which was essentially born from four years of me being frustrated by everybody wanting literary fiction and like knowing how much of the market and how much of film was taken up by speculative fiction and how ridiculous it was that we were not making explicit space for that. Um, And when I left the University of Toronto... I knew that I wanted to take the structure that I had built for the spectatorial and put it in place in an actual magazine. Because when I was in my creative writing class at the University of Toronto, my professor handed out a list of magazines that we could submit to. And there was only one speculative fiction magazine on that list. And that didn't make sense to me. Uh, I knew that there was almost definitely so much speculative fiction being written and speculative poetry and comics and everything else in Canada. And all of that work was going to the States. And also probably not getting recognized in the way that it should have been and not centralizing as a community. So I waited for a few years after graduating while I figured out my day job career. And then I founded Augur with my close friend, Mado, and then um, the person who took on the spectatorial in its third year, uh, Alex DePompa, and we just kind of
0: started ideating. Agra's very first Kickstarter raised $7,000. It was enough funding to cover their first two years of operation as a baby magazine. And their latest round of funding raised more than $20,000, an almost 300% increase, in addition to grant funding support from every level of government. They regularly receive more than 2,000 submissions per submission period. Augur's website says that they are excited by those difficult-to-categorize works of fiction, stating, Augur makes room for writing from uncommon perspectives and brings together the often disparate realms of literary and genre fiction. Digging into that a little bit, how did you settle on that and... Can you tell me a bit more about the perceived or real distinction between the literary and and genre worlds? Yeah.
1: So making express room for marginalized creators was a very easy part of our mission statement because I am trans. I am disabled. I can't imagine creating a space that does not expressly create that room. And it is... Something that I think is like sorely needed within Canada as well. I think that there's a lot of room for growth there, and I think there's a lot of incredible creators made evident by we've rarely had an issue go by where we have not had a Black or Indigenous creator in the issue. It is not as hard as people think that it is. On the flip side, the space between genre and realism. I think it is a perceived space, but I also think that it is a, a marketing space. I think that we have this really interesting thing within hashtag Camlet, um, where we will have these speculative stories show up and they will be marketed as literary fiction. And then, and then sci-fi fantasy is different. You know, like, that's a different section of the bookstore. It is exclusively a marketing decision. And I mean, I don't know. I just feel like there's so much content that doesn't receive the audience that it deserves by virtue of the categories that it's put into. I think about books like The Fifth Season and The Poppy War that have been absolutely incredibly successful within the speculative fiction space. Like, there's no way that you can look at these books and not see incredible success. But I also think about all of the readers that love the types of themes that these books are exploring and the intensity and the craft and the types of readers that would be in the commercial space or in the literary fiction space that would likely resonate with these books because of the level of craft that they are operating at. And even though they are so successful, I feel like there is still a wall to hop between the two of them. And... You know, like, I'm not going to go to my aunt who reads literary fiction and expect her to have even heard of these books, despite how successful they are. And she reads non-stop. However, if I ask her about any Canadian realist book that comes out that deals in very similar themes, she will know about that. So many people read science fiction and fantasy and love it, but they would not tell you that they read science fiction and fantasy because that is not how it has been marketed to them. And... What we wanted to do was call attention to the fact that these things can be side by side. We will survive if the pulpy fantasy story is next to the literary fiction fabulism piece. And we will have the same reader across both and everything will be fine. And what we found is actually this huge delight amongst our writers that they can be speculative fiction writers that they do not have to be just literary fiction writers that they can
0: be both so let's bring things back to our show opening question how would you define speculative fiction i
1: would define speculative fiction as anything that is not realist
0: So a very broad definition.
1: That's, yeah, it's my very, very simple. I don't think that there is a narrow definition of speculative. And that's actually why we chose it, too. This is why we chose speculative fiction over science fiction and fantasy is Augur itself publishes like what I call dreamy realism, which is even realism that has a sense that something could not be real, but you don't know for sure. There's a lot of like literary fiction that lives in that space of like, oh, is something spooky or is something kind of fantastical? Or do I feel like I could slip away into a dream world at any moment? That kind of vibe I feel is very speculative. And ultimately, all literature is speculative, you know, like these things aren't aren't real. And even when you get into like autobiography and memoir like where do you draw the line um so for me speculative fiction is something that I believe an author chooses and if you look at the auger website you'll essentially see that we're like we're pretty much open to everything as long as it hits the auger tone and I think what that comes back to is Augur is more a set of values than we are a publisher of a specific genre. So we believe in the power of speculative fiction to be an incredible lens for opening up conversation and exploring possibility. And so that is what we want our stories to do and our poems to do. And that can be for fun. Like, it does not have to be uber serious we are a fun place. We've been trying, we've been trying to shift our branding a little bit because we got a little. We love a powerful, emphatic despair story as well. Um, but we, it can be fun. It can just be like we want to explore this because it's lovely, or it can be we want to explore this really difficult and challenging subject matter, and speculative fiction allows new windows into it.
0: Augur's approach to genre and content follows a kind of "rules were made to be broken" philosophy. They're not saying, your work has to have X, Y, or Z to be in our Specfic magazine. Instead, they're saying, hey, send us your work and show us what Specfic is to you. And it makes so much sense for a magazine working in a genre that has such a strong community built around it. They're co-creating their genre niche with the people who are most invested in their project. Take, for example, the origin story of their newest initiative, which Carrie mentioned earlier. They recently launched Tales and Feathers, a slice of life fantasy magazine.
1: Slice of life fantasy for me is, you know, when you are reading Tamora Pierce and the kids are eating dinner and chatting, or it's your training montage, or it's your shopkeeper backstory, or any, any number of the kind of just daily life
0: um, components of fantasy and fairy tales. An impulsive tweet Carrie posted about wanting a magazine like this to exist got more than 300 likes, which, of course, got their magazine publishing wheels turning.
1: And then shortly after that, there was this extremely viral tweet demanding cozy fantasy or ex- wanting, wanting cozy fantasy that the Internet just like took to at large. And since then, it's
0: become an actually recognizable uh, genre. It was destiny. They managed to fully fund the project. Now, to the delight of cozy fantasy fans everywhere, they publish new pieces online for free throughout the year. But what does it mean to become a genre anyways? We've talked a lot about these things as marketing terms, prescribed by publicists or booksellers to move titles. But cozy fantasy grew from the bottom up, born of online demand.
1: I think that when I say became a genre, what I mean is like it becomes recognized in a broader way as something that we can speak to. Like, I'm a big fan of descriptive over prescriptive. And I think that what we saw around cozy fantasy as a genre was a descriptive movement where collectively a number of people who loved this type of work or these parts of books showed up together and described what they were looking for and i think that that is the most incredible thing i think it's the most beautiful part of being online there's a lot of shitty parts of being online but this is one of the most beautiful parts and yeah i i want i want more genres to happen like this i want more just like showing up i want this beautiful thing that no one knew there was a demand for and here it is, and here's how we're gonna fill it.
0: Our final guest for this episode, who also knows a thing or two about viral tweets, happens to agree. I think that there's there's also a weird thing there, right? Where the,
2: as soon as as soon as you sort of scratch the surface of the history of making genres right it's a it's a really fascinating and complicated process but it's never it's very rarely deliberate you know it's kind of retrospective retroactive
0: this is amal el-matar amal amal like a malcontent. A malcontent. a person who is dissatisfied and rebellious i don't know about dissatisfied but amal's definitely a bit of an sff rebel She's one of the nicest humans in the industry, and she's been messing around with the genre for years. Gosh,
2: some people are very annoyed with me for my expensive like, view of what constitutes science fiction, for that matter, you know, which I think comes from the fact that they have a very narrow and specific idea of what science fiction needs to be, and I can't even name exactly what that is. Some For some people, it's like big idea fiction. For some people, it has to involve the math works, technological speculation, you know, um, and just a, I don't know, a, a narrow perspective on what science is, as well as uh, a narrow perspective on what fiction is. Anyway, sorry, I'm, I'm roasting, I'm, I'm making up a guy in my head to get mad, up, mad at, but I'm sort of not because they're also the people who comment on the column and the Times. So what can I say?
0: Actually, I'm just going to let Amal tell you a little more about herself and her work.
2: I'm a writer, I write science fiction, fantasy, uh, I write uh, criticism, I, I write a science fiction fantasy column for the New York Times called Otherworldly. Uh, I am one of two authors of This Is How You Lose the Time War with Max Gladstone, uh, which is a um, novella. <laughs> I've stopped being able to describe my book. Uh, uh, it's a spy versus spy epistolary um, Shenanigan situation across time and space. Uh, what else do I do?
0: Yeah, I think
2: that's mostly me.
0: Amal is very modestly not pointing out that This Is How You Lose the Time War has won almost every possible award for sci-fi and fantasy writing, including the Hugo, Aurora, Nebula, and Locus Awards for Best Novella. Her award-winning short stories and poetry are widely lauded around the world. And since recording this interview, her work has reached an even larger audience thanks to a mind-boggling series of events sparked by a fan's tweet. If you have a minute to Google, it's worth your time. But trust us, this is a book that does live up to the hype. But while Amal has written across a ton of different genres and forms, she describes all her writing as fantasy first. And I
2: have a reason for this. I have a rationale for it uh, that is to do with just how strange the fact of narrative is in the world. Uh, I think that the act of making a coherent narrative out of the chaos of our everyday circumstances, the way that the world works, just, you know, whether we're seeing narrative, whether we're inventing narrative, uh, it is a, a profoundly strange thing that we do uh, and I feel like it's the kind of profoundly strange thing that uh, most closely aligns with the fantastic. I think it's a fantastical thing that we engage in when we tell stories, uh, whether we're telling stories that are about the kind of humdrum observable minutia of the everyday uh, or we're telling stories with fanciful, whimsical dragons and spaceships and whatever else. Uh, So I don't know that I actually have a label when I think of myself as a writer. I think of myself as a writer, but I, I don't see myself as a fantasy writer, meaning writer within a niche. I think of myself as a fantasy writer, meaning I write fantasy, science fiction, a whole bunch of genres that have acquired and accumulated conventions and markers that have also evolved over time so this sounds very pretentious as I hear myself saying this uh I don't know but like yeah I for a while I would say oh I I'm a speculative writer uh and stuff feeling like speculative is is a is an appropriate umbrella and increasingly I'm just like I'm a writer and I write a lot of things and uh I I just, I feel like fantasy is kind of the most expansive uh, and, um, yeah, the most expansive uh, label for those things.
0: While I'm a huge fan of everything Amel writes, I also really wanted to hear more from her perspective as a critic. Her expansive view of the genre has been influenced by her work at the New York Times. She started writing their otherworldly column back in 2018, taking over for the legendary Triple Hugo Award-winning writer N.K. Jemison. As part of the job, Amal has to make sure she's not reviewing any books where she could have a conflict of interest. At the Times, this means she can't review books written by personal friends, books edited by someone who's edited her work, or books published by authors with whom she shares an agent. This sounds like it might be sort of limiting, right? Amal has to go a lot further afield to find things to review, but the outcome has actually been really rewarding for her.
2: So I have, as a consequence, read books from a, a lot more small presses that I didn't know about before. Um, I have like found really beautiful uh, work that really fits the affects that you know delight and please me, but within uh, within the you know quote unquote literary areas and stuff like that and i hope that i've been able to kind of bring an awareness of them to a more sf readership and i I just love anything that smacks of like cross-pollination between groups of readers as a really good thing and i I feel like a big part of the role of a critic is sort of to to be a sort of translator (laughs) of um this book and i mean this in a in not just the sense of, like, language, but the sense of movement. Like, I'm literally translating, moving this book from this context into this other context where people might bring something different to it and that might enrich or transform uh, their own sense of genre boundaries, for instance, or their own sense of what delights them in a story.
0: Finding delight in a story is a big thing for Amal. Enjoying art for art's sake... Throughout this episode, we've touched a bit here and there on sci-fi and fantasy's role in our culture, the opportunity these works have to deal with real-life issues, but does it have to be useful? Amal sees it from both sides.
2: On the one hand, I'm very leery of um, of the kind of instrumentalizing of art in general and of genre. Like I think that there is a a reflex. That we often have, and that we're kind of trained into, uh, to justify the existence of art through reference to its utility, right? And I'm very suspicious of that move, and I, I, I bristle a little, um, when, when I hear, you know, like the value of art is that, you know, it makes us experience empathy for other people, which I, it's a claim I'm also very suspicious of. I think that we probably experience art first and foremost as like. An immersion in in a story in a world, um, terrible people who do terrible things still enjoy art, <laughs> like um, and so I don't know. Uh, I'm
0: very sometimes um, imagining life on a spaceship can just be fun.
2: Sometimes it Can just be fun, and you know how like I think that being transported and um, and and you know feeling joy. I mean those those feel like things that are, um, that don't need justification. Um, but that said, I'm, I am aware of, uh, the medicinal qualities of art on some level. Um, I can think of, um, this is a very weird, weird turn for the stake, but, uh, when the Beirut explosion happened, um, a couple of years ago, God, I can't, time being what it is, please correct me. But when the Beirut explosion happened, my, my family is from Lebanon and, um, just, uh, like without dwelling too much on the event, because it is, is very horrible and painful. I found it very hard to talk about it, to think about it, um, to just a- approach the fact of it having happened in the world. Uh, and, uh, and I, like, just, it's, it's difficult to kind of talk about just the, the flinching that my brain would do whenever the subject came up. I would sort of shut down and just kind of need to, like, be physically away from wherever the information that was coming at me was from. And around that time, I started watching um, Neon Genesis Evangelion for the first time, remotely, with friends who were introducing me to it. And i want to say in like the first episode or something there is a gigantic explosion Mm -hmm. and there was something about a gigantic explosion being rendered in animation within this strange world the strange like war-torn context and stuff like that that i i felt like something snapped in me in like a releasing kind of way um And I can't actually remember if, like, this made me cry or whatever. I I don't think that's what it was. I just remember this relief that I was able to look at this thing happening um, that I wasn't able to look at in in another context. And I I think of that as something that um, is not necessarily, like, uniquely the province of of fantasy and genre, but I know that in in my case, I I felt like... uh, whether it's a question of distance or whether it's a question of um, like a palatable representation or I couldn't, I I don't know, I I don't have the language exactly for describing what happened in any kind of coherent way. I just know that it helped um, and it helped me and this is not to say that it will like help anyone else but that I do think that there is uh, a capacity for art to allow you to access things that are difficult that you might not want to access in your day-to-day and that allowing you to conceive of or process those things in this not even necessarily different context in the sense of it's another world and stuff like that but just there are layers of remove that I think it is uh, helpful. Like, I, I do think that it can have these like medicinal, uh, palliative. <laughs> I don't know qualities. Um, without that being the reason for the art in the first place, I, I think that I'm, I'm really grateful for those, for those moments.
0: As a fan of science fiction and fantasy, this really resonated with me. I was always a kid with a big imagination. And reading allowed me to access so many new ideas and perspectives and lives beyond my own experience, growing up in a small village in southwestern Ontario. But reading about the fantastical also helped me to process real-life struggles, so that when I needed my curiosity or bravery to face the unknown, I was able to draw on these imagined experiences. When people describe science fiction and fantasy in opposition to realism, They're usually referencing how speculative elements can pull us out of the everyday to be open to new experiences. But doesn't the same thing happen in realist fiction too? What makes a character real or relatable will be different to every reader. And that's a really beautiful thing that I love about genre fiction, and especially science fiction and fantasy, as both a reader and a writer. The limit is your imagination. And your imagination has no limits. Thanks for tuning in to Episode 4 of Read the North, Season 2. The show is hosted by me, Rebecca Diem, and produced and edited by Quentin Bradshaw. Theme music and scoring are by James Ellerkamp. Production assistance and episode artwork is by Haley Richardson. Thank you so much to our guests for this episode, Chris Zago, Carrie C. Byrne, and Amal El-Motar. If you're enjoying the series, please consider supporting the show by subscribing, leaving a review, or sharing it with a friend. Read the North is a co-production of the Word on the Street Toronto and Met Radio. For more community radio programming, you can tune in and listen live at metradio.ca. To keep up with the Word on the Street and all the latest festival news, be sure to give us a follow on social media at TorontowoTS, or sign up for our newsletter at toronto.thewordonthestreet.ca. New episodes will be released bi-weekly all summer long. Tune in live at 1280 a.m. on the dial or at metradio.ca every other Wednesday. And subscribe to Read the North on the podcast platform of your choice. Thanks for listening.